Take your Bibles and turn along with me to Colossians chapter 1, if you would, please. Paul has just shared with his readers his singular ministry focus, his ongoing method, and his unchanging goal in ministry in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. I just want to remind you of what Paul said there. As he says in verse 28 of Colossians 1, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within in me. This morning, we are going to see the desired result that Paul so longed to see come to fruition in the church. A church, well-established, walking by faith, undistracted by false teaching, and undeterred from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is our focus this morning. Let me read it for us. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it tells us not just who Christ is, but who we are to be, who we are to aspire to be, and what the church is here for. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us this morning, correct our thinking, encourage us, challenge us, rebuke us according to your word and by your spirit. Lord, we ask that we would grow thereby. In Jesus' name, amen. As we walk through Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I want us to see together four, four blessed results of proclaiming Christ. Paul has said, we proclaim Him. We proclaim Christ. What was Paul's goal? The end result he was looking for in proclaiming Christ, we see it here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you don't like that, then let me share another with you. Four marks of a healthy Christian and church. Four marks of a healthy Christian and church. And if you don't like that one and you want to choose your own adventure, here's another one. 
Four fruits every faithful pastor and elder desires for their church. Four fruits every faithful pastor and elder desires for their church. All of those will work because we see all of those uh, on display here in these verses. But we're going to focus in this morning on four blessed results of proclaiming Christ. What happens when Christ is proclaimed faithfully? Over a long period of time, the church is built up. What does it mean that the church is built up? This is what it looks like. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. All right, and so the first blessed result of proclaiming Christ or mark of a healthy church or fruit every faithful pastor wants to see in their church is this. Encouraged hearts springing forth from a loving unity in Christ. Encouraged hearts springing forth from a loving unity in Christ. Paul emphasizes again here in verse 1 of chapter 2 how invested he is in their spiritual health, in their spiritual progress. He says he struggles on their behalf. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. He struggles on their behalf. He uses the same root word that he used back in chapter 1 and verse 29, from which we get our English word agonize. Paul's concern for them was such that he struggled and he agonized over their spiritual condition and the spiritual threats that confronted them. He was concerned for them. He had a Christian, pastoral, brotherly concern for them. This was something that Paul felt very keenly throughout his ministry. You'll recall in 2 Corinthians 11 when Paul recounts that long list of sufferings that he's experienced for the sake of Christ and the church, including sufferings like beatings and shipwrecks and imprisonments. He then at the end of that long list of sufferings adds this. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul had an emotional and spiritual weight that he carried around with him all the time of concern for all the churches. As an apostle, Paul felt a responsibility for all the churches that he had contact with, that he knew about. And that concern bore a great weight upon his shoulders. And it's just this kind of concern that Paul evidences here as he writes to the Colossian believers. But notice that he doesn't only have them in mind as a local church, but he also mentions the Laodiceans. Laodicea was the nearest city to Colossae, just about nine miles away or so. Paul was concerned for these churches, both the church at Laodicea and Colossae, and others like them because of the spiritual threats they were and they were facing and that were always present among them. Spiritual threats like false teaching, spiritual apathy, and divisions. These things seem to be constant threats to the spiritual health and vitality of the churches that Paul ministered to. And Paul was constantly concerned for them. And Paul's concerns were not unfounded, as it turns out. 
You may realize that the church at Laodicea sounds familiar to you. Well, if it does, it's probably because it's mentioned rather notoriously in the book of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Keep your place here in Colossians 1 and turn to Revelation 3. In just a few decades from the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, which he wanted shared with the Laodiceans, in just a few short decades, the Apostle John would record Christ's stinging rebuke uttered over the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3.14 says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Wow. What a rebuke. A sad reality that the church at Laodicea, though it had started well, had veered off in terms of spiritual vitality. So Paul was deeply concerned. He's vexed even for the spiritual well-being of the church at Colossae, at Laodicea, and all the churches who hadn't seen his face. Paul had a genuine concern for Christians he'd never met yet, many of whom he would never meet in his lifetime, most of whom he would never meet in his lifetime. And that reminds us that Christian concern, Christian love, knows no limits of geography or of personal relationships. We can be concerned as Christians for people we've never met. Christian love compels us to pray for people we don't know. The whole idea of sending missionaries is that they might reach people who need Jesus that we'll never meet or know in this lifetime and help strengthen churches that we'll never visit or be a part of. Why is that? Because Christian love compels us to care for those, to love those, to invest in those we'll never meet and never know. Just like Paul here, he agonizes over these Christians he's never met. He struggles emotionally and spiritually over them. And his agonizing over them is with a particular desire in mind for them. And this desire is expressed here in verses 2 through 7. And I've broken up this desire into these four bite-sized parts. And that first desire, as we've already seen, is this. That he wants their hearts to be encouraged, having been knit together in love. Paul wants to see them encouraged. Paul wants to see their hearts filled with courage and cheer. Courage in the face of danger and threats and cheer in the knowledge of their unshakable position in Christ. He wants them to be encouraged, to have courage and cheerful courage. This encouragement, this courage and cheer would grow and flourish, Paul says, in the context of their loving unity as a church, the body of Christ. 
It is in the context of the local church that we're to find encouragement, courage to face each day and cheer along the way. This comes to us or is intended to come to us in the context of the local church and our loving unity. We are encouraged, we find courage and cheer through the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ, through the examples of our brothers and sisters in Christ, through the singing of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and through the care and love of our brothers and sisters in Christ. All of this has the effect on us of giving us courage and cheer. This encouragement that Paul wants to see in the churches, both at Colossae and Laodicea and all the churches, is made to flourish most abundantly in a setting of loving unity. When we are functioning truly as the body of Christ, as a body, a body knitted together, In love for Christ and in love for one another, the result will necessarily be encouragement. That's what the body is supposed to do. Grant each member courage, courage and cheer that is drawn from the rest of the body. Love is the bond of our unity. Christ-like love, selfless love, and others-centered love. That is the glue that holds us together. That is the bond that creates our unity. It is our love. And love, resulting in unity, encourages the individual. Look what Paul says just a few lines later in chapter 3 of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Notice how concerned he is about their unity and threats to their unity and the love they are to have for one another. Colossians 3.12, he says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Who wants to go to that church? Just me. All right. Come on, you want to be there, right? That's the kind of church we want to be a part of. Not a nitpicky, judgmental, harboring bitterness against one another, keeping long lists of grievances and checking off people and saying, I'm done with them. That's not a church united and knitted together in the heart. Not at all. Then look at verse 14, Colossians 3, 14. Beyond all these things, beyond compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness beyond all these things put on love which is what the perfect bond of unity 
Love is the glue that holds us together. Love is what produces kindness and compassion and humility and gentleness and patience, forbearance and forgiveness. The key to our encouragement then, the key to our courage and our cheer is our unity as the body of Christ. And then the key to our unity is our love for one another and our Savior. When the devil wants to bring discouragement to God's people, when he wants to strike fear in their hearts and rob them of their joy, he often does it by sowing division among the church. By letting love lag and selfishness increase. And the result is, I'm here for me. I'm here to get what I can get. And if anyone crosses me, they better watch out. That will only produce divisions of all kind, and the result will be a sick and weak church. Unprepared for the day of trouble. Not ready to face what is to come. But a church grounded and founded on love for Christ and love for one another, expressing that love in a unity with hearts knit together will produce in each person encouragement, courage and cheer. Paul had this in mind for the Colossians, for the Laodiceans and all the churches, that their hearts would be encouraged having been knit together in loving unity. We proclaim Christ. Why? So that the church would be united in love and find courage and cheer that it needs. Secondly, the second result of proclaiming Christ is that there would be a people fully assured in the true knowledge of Christ. Fully assured in the true knowledge of Christ. Paul wants these believers to be fully assured. That's what he says at the second half of verse 2. Attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. Paul associates this assurance, this full assurance that he wants them to have with wealth or riches, abundance. He is saying that this assurance has an abundance of spiritual riches that come along with it. When you're fully assured, you are stocked up. You are wealthy beyond imagination with spiritual riches. What is this assurance of understanding that makes us spiritually rich? It is the assurance of our salvation. It is the assurance that our sins are forgiven. It is the assurance that we are now reconciled to God and stand before Him as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, as Paul said in chapter 1 and verse 22. This full assurance 
comes to us, Paul says, through the true knowledge of God's mystery. And then Paul quickly defines what this term mystery refers to, and he says it's Christ himself. We receive full assurance through the true knowledge of God's mystery, and that mystery is Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself is God's mystery, and it is the true knowledge of Jesus Christ that brings this full assurance of understanding of our right standing before God. Now, God's mystery has already been mentioned back in chapter 1 and verse 26. You remember we talked about that. A mystery is something that was previously unknown, but that has now been disclosed and made known. This mystery was there in chapter 1 and verse 26, described as gloriously rich. And the mystery itself was said to be Christ in you, the hope of glory, chapter 1 and verse 27. The glorious mystery that makes us spiritually rich is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is the truth of Christ. Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, indwelling every believer, imparting to them the settled certainty of having a claim on the glory that is to come. Now in chapter 2 here and verse 3, Paul restates this truth, explaining that the mystery has reference to Christ himself, And in verse 3, he adds that in Christ are actually hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, again, notice the reference to wealth and riches. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Think about a treasure map. How does a treasure map work? Well, it shows you that X marks the spot, right? And in this case, the X is Christ. Christ marks the spot where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. Christ is the treasure box. And in him, all the treasures are contained. Treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the other treasure boxes of the world are hopelessly empty, are they not? They contain no real wisdom, no true knowledge, for they do not acknowledge the Christ who made all things, who is before all things, who holds all things together, for whom was created all things. But in Christ, that treasure is found. The treasure of wisdom and knowledge, wisdom and knowledge that leads to eternal life. In Christ, the treasure of eternal life is found. You can't be truly wise apart from Christ, and you can't really have knowledge outside of Christ. Heavenly wisdom and saving knowledge are only found in Jesus Christ. And Paul's concern for them is that they would experience all the wealth and all the riches that come from being fully assured in the true knowledge of Christ. The riches of this full assurance aren't rooted and grounded in our being good enough or smart enough or even in having a great amount of faith. That is not where we get assurance. 
and the wealth and riches that come from it. Our assurance is rooted in the person of Jesus alone. Our assurance comes from he who assures us. Jesus. When we seek to gain our assurance by our performance, when we seek to gain our assurance of salvation by the quality of our faith or the quantity of our faith, our assurance will surely begin to falter. Why? Because my performance is up and down. My faith comes in and out. The quality of my faith ebbs and flows. Our full assurance is grounded not so much in our perfect fidelity, but in Christ's perfect identity. The image of the invisible God, that's who he is. The firstborn from the dead, that's who he is. The one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, that's who Jesus is. The one in whom God has chosen to reconcile all things to himself through the blood of his cross, that is the Christ we proclaim. This is the true knowledge of Christ that produces the riches of full assurance, beloved. This Paul was concerned that they would possess themselves presently. The wealth and riches of full assurance based on the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Who Christ is assures us of our salvation. Thirdly, the result of proclaiming Christ is a well-ordered and stable faith in Christ. Verse 4, Paul says, I say this so no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Paul knew that there were false teachers among them. There were currents and underbeds, undercurrents of, of false teachings going on. He'd heard from Epaphroditus, who was a citizen of Colossae, who was one of, among the first believers who had been saved under Paul's ministry, having heard Paul preach. He took the gospel back to Colossae, and now Epaphroditus serving as, if you will, the, the pastor there, essentially, brings word to the Apostle Paul that there are new threats to the gospel of Jesus Christ in Colossae. Paul is writing because he's concerned. There are those who are seeking to delude you through persuasive argument. They were trying to convince them of things that weren't true, things that didn't square with the gospel, things that didn't square with the scriptures. They were trying to convince them that the real path to wisdom and knowledge were found in abstaining from certain foods or observing certain holidays or from treating the body harshly. A form of asceticism. They were trying to persuade them that, yeah, yeah, Christ is important for beginning, but then when you get beyond Christ, then you can see the power of angels and the importance of their role in our daily lives. But all of these arguments were leading them toward empty treasure boxes. Christ is the true treasure of wisdom and knowledge. 
And even though Paul had never met them, even though they didn't know what he looked like, even though he didn't know what they looked like, Paul nevertheless could say that he was with them in spirit. He stood with them in spirit, united in the body of Christ, united by the spirit of God. Paul is emphasizing here their spiritual unity in Christ, something that's true for all Christians. I'm always amazed you can travel across the country or around the world and meet a Christian and immediately you have more in common with them than you have even with your own family members who do not know Christ. There's an instant unity, an instant bond of the Spirit in Christ, an instant mutual concern for one another. So Paul stands in solidarity with them. He is with them in spirit, rejoicing to see their good discipline and the stability of their faith in Christ. What an encouraging word from the Apostle Paul to have spoken over your church. Paul rejoiced to see the stability of their faith in Jesus. Despite the threats that were present and those who were seeking to delude them with persuasive arguments, Paul rejoiced to see them standing firm and strong in the truth. The Colossian believers were, in fact, at this moment, doing quite well, despite the threats. We know this because Paul has already said, affirming things about their faith. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Look back there with me if you would. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you had previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you've heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Paul is not chastising them. He is encouraging them. He's affirming them in their faith. He's heard good reports. Even though there are these threats, nevertheless, they're standing strong. Now, notice what Paul says here in chapter 2. He mentions their good discipline. Chapter 2, verse 5. Rejoicing to see or to hear of your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Good discipline. The English Standard Version has good order. The idea here is that everything seems to be in its right place. Everything is ordered as it ought to be with regard to your faith. Their beliefs and their faith appear to be well ordered. Nothing seems to be out of place. And this good order of their belief has contributed to the stability of their faith. The idea here is that up to this point at least, everything seemed to be ship-shape with regard to their faith. Paul wasn't concerned then about the present state of their faith, but rather he is concerned about what effect these present threats may have on them in the future if they were to go unanswered, uncorrected, unchecked. 
One commentator said this. He said, this epistle is a vaccination against heresy, not an antibiotic for those already infected. It's a vaccination. Paul is writing because he's concerned for them. He agonizes over them. And he's concerned about these threats. Nevertheless, he's encouraged by seeing their good, ordered faith. What we believe about Jesus Christ matters. Doctrine matters. People say, oh, doctrine divides. No, it doesn't. It unites. It unites around the truth. True doctrine unites around the truth. And what we believe about Jesus Christ matters, and it matters for eternity. And because this is true, we have to be careful what it is that we believe And how it is that we articulate what we believe. There are those who, with good intentions, say things like, no creed but Christ. Which is itself a kind of creed, is it not? But beyond that, logical problem, how are you going to define who Christ is? No creed but Christ. Which Christ? Who is Christ? What did Christ do? What will Christ yet do? How are you going to define who Christ is? You're going to need to articulate the truth you believe about Christ in some form or fashion. And in so doing, you will be making some kind of creedal statement about Christ. Christ is the Son of God. Welcome to a creedal statement. You've just tried to summarize the Bible's teaching in your own words. And so it's far better to follow carefully formulated statements of previous generations of Christians who've articulated the truth of Christ in words that have stood the test of Scripture and have stood the test of time. Statements like the Apostles' Creed, which our church affirms, the Nicene Creed, the Creed of Chalcedon, the Second London Confession of Faith, our own church's 10-point statement of faith, the Evangelical Free Church statement of faith is a creed that we affirm. And while not having the authority of Scripture, since these creeds, these human creeds, aren't inspired or inerrant documents like the Bible is, nevertheless, these confessions are tried and true summaries of what the Bible teaches us about Jesus Christ and His gospel. Paul himself, as we've already seen, quoted from well-known hymns, well-known creeds. Back in chapter 1 and verses 15 through 20. The Colossians' faith was well-ordered and stable. And Paul rejoiced to hear it. This was a key to their spiritual health. This was a key to their future health as well. A well-ordered and stable faith centered upon Jesus Christ.
Fourth and finally, a fruit of proclaiming Christ is a continuing walk of faith firmly and gratefully rooted in Christ. In verse 6, Paul says, Therefore, with reference to all that he's just said, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Look, you're doing great, Paul says. (laughs) I'm I'm really encouraged to hear about your well-ordered faith in Jesus Christ. Keep going. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul includes three crucial titles in naming the object of our faith. Christ, Jesus, the Lord. Christ. Christ is the Messiah. The chosen and anointed king. The one foretold all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Right after the fall of man into sin. The anointed king. The chosen one. Christ. Christ Jesus, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Babe, born in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary, Jesus the Carpenter's Son, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the one who lived a sinless life, Jesus the one who performed miracles of God, displaying the very power of God over death, disease, and even sin. Jesus, who died on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners. Christ Jesus, the Lord. Lord, risen from the dead on the third day. Seen by eyewitnesses. Received up into glory. Now seated at the right hand of God. He is Lord over all. Christ Jesus the Lord. He is the object of our faith. That's how we we began this walk of faith. And Paul says here that is expressly how we are to continue. Having received Christ Jesus the Lord by faith, so walk in Him. How did they receive Christ Jesus the Lord? How does anyone receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith. As they had received him by faith, so they were to now walk by faith in Christ. Their walking in him is their daily conduct, their daily life. Our daily walk is to be by faith in Christ Jesus the Lord. As you began by faith, so continue by faith. Our life in Christ is a life of faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Paul's message here then is what? Stay the course. As you began, so continue. As you started, so endure. Don't move to the right or to the left. Stay on the same path you started on. The path of faith in Jesus alone. This faith is further described in verse 7. 
having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. They were firmly rooted by faith in Jesus, and now they were being continually built up in him by faith. And now, even now, they are established in their faith. And one of the fruits of their faith is that they are flow overflowing with gratitude. Gratitude, knowing that their sins are forgiven. Gratitude, knowing that they are spiritually wealthy beyond all measure because they have found in Christ the treasures of all eternity, beyond all comprehension. Grateful that they have eternal life and that Christ is in them and because he is in them, they now possess The hope of glory. A gratitude that spills over into every area of life. Knowing that all that we have and all that we are and all that we ever will be comes from the Lord's good and gracious hand and is received. How? By faith. Simply trusting in Christ alone. This, then, is what proclaiming Christ produces. This is what a healthy Christian and a healthy church looks like. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is what every faithful pastor and elder desires for their church. That they would be a people with encouraged hearts that springs forth from a loving unity in Christ. That they would be a people who are fully assured in the true knowledge of Christ that they would be a people with a well-ordered and stable faith in Christ, and that they would be a people with a continuing walk of faith firmly and gratefully rooted in Christ. What does all that have in common? Faith in Christ. As you began by faith, so continue by faith. Don't be sidetracked by the things that glitter around us. Don't be sidetracked by doctrines of angels or by messages of self-denial. Don't be sidetracked by any of that. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, your well-ordered and stable faith. That's how you began. That's how you continue. May the Lord make it so among us for his glory and our good. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we rejoice in who you are. You are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn from the dead, the chosen means of reconciliation by God the Father, to reconcile all things to himself through the blood of your cross. Lord Jesus, it's so easy for us to become distracted, to go after other things that we think are key to our spiritual health and vitality, and yet they are empty treasure boxes. In you and in the true knowledge of you, are all the riches and wealth of eternity. 
Lord, may we keep our eyes on you. As we began by faith in you alone, so may we continue by faith in you alone. Experiencing the full assurance of our salvation, not because our faith is so great, but because our Savior is so great. Lord, may we be encouraged and filled with courage and cheer that comes from the bond of our unity that is born out of our love for one another. All of it rooted in you and the work you have done in our hearts. May it increase, Lord, to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.